Welcome to Humanities 101. I am Lisa Prinz. And I'm Kendra Cowley, and we are the coordinators of Humanities 101, or HUM. Along with our amazing volunteers, Anne, Bobby, Claudia, and Jay, and intern Morningstar Willier, we've been putting together weekly HUM classes here on CJSR. This week, we are going to be talking about the relationship between food, cooking, and story. We have three great interviews lined up that will hopefully get your mouth watering for good food and conversation. Just a reminder, for those who might not know what we're doing on air, you're listening to Humanities 101, or HUM. HUM is a free university course that usually meets in person at the U of A and off campus, but due to COVID-19, we're now meeting on air. You can always reach out for more information at 587-709-5472 or hum101 at ualberta.ca. You can also check out our website at hum101onair.ca where you will find past episodes and materials that are mentioned in interviews as well as readings to keep us thinking. First, we spoke to Alexis Hilliard founder of Stump Kitchen, a local YouTube cooking series that features recipes for alternative diets and celebrates diverse bodies and ways of being in the world. Alexis talks to us about cooking with her stump, encouraging confidence in young people with limb difference, and the joy of food. But before we jump into the interview, Anne and Jay share some definitions for terms that come up when we speak to Alexis. When we talk about representation in HUM, we most often talk about the ideas and opinions that come to mind when talking about people, cultures, and communities. We might ask how people's cultures and identities are portrayed in newspapers, social media, and even casual conversations around your neighborhood. All of these things vary day to day, topic to topic, but what we do know is that representation matters. It's more than just an idea. It impacts how we think about ourselves, as well as how we feel about others. Let's start simple and get more complicated from there. Imagine an apple. Maybe you can see it. Maybe you can smell it. Or perhaps even hear the crunch of biting into it. This is one type of representation. But there's also another level to representation. The deeper meanings that are tied to the cultural ideas and the norms and the opinions that we hold. Abstract concepts. Let's think about this. What does the apple mean? Or in other words, how is it represented in our culture? Maybe you think of an old adage, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. So it might represent health and wellness. Alternatively, you might think of temptation or a fall from grace. These are some religious representations. As we can quickly see, things, places, people, and ideas all have multiple layers of representation. The apple is only an example, and what it shows is that something even as simple as a piece of fruit is relatively complex in its different representations. And as we move to think about people and communities, things get even more complicated. Let's think about people and communities. They are vastly more complex than apples and can have widely different representations. So if we always see the same representation, say, of a particular race or culture, we run the risk of making assumptions about that entire race or culture. And those representations might not even make sense. Good, bad, or otherwise, 
These representations do not allow for difference or complexity across, for example, cultures, and often reduce people, places, and ideas to a stereotypical representation determined not by those being represented, but by those in power, those who have the power to make representations. So these representations cast people in a stereotypical lousy light. It impacts those people's lives. The same can be said for the opposite side of the equation too. People can be overly represented, and this can make it feel like their thoughts, ideas, and opinions are the ones that matter the most. Representations, like opinions, feelings, and ideas, hold power. But let's think of a positive representation. Recently, Cree hockey player Ethan Bear wore a jersey in a game that had his name written in Cree syllabics. Grand Chief Wilton Littlechild, who is also Cree, was asked about Bear wearing this jersey and said the following, and I quote, The spirit name in Cree for Masqua is also one of our sacred teachings of courage, and that is what the Bear represents. Ethan brings all of us great pride with his strength and natural ability to overcome challenges. This is significant, and people everywhere will be reminded when they see the syllabics on Ethan's jersey to have courage, be confident, and be brave. End quote. There will never be a time when all representations are perfectly equitable or just. However, there are some things that we should keep in mind when we think about representation. One is that it's never as simple as it seems, and anytime we see a representation presented as black or white, we should always try and think critically about the many people, places, and ideas that are not being represented, or might be better represented. Secondly, we know that representation is the most equitable when people and culture speak for themselves. This is why it is essential that as thoughtful people who care about representation issues, we are always asking whose voices are being heard and whose voices are not being heard, and why those voices are being listened or not listened to. Lastly, we can ask ourselves, what things can we do that help provide space and opportunity for all people to craft the representations of themselves and their own cultures in ways that make the most sense to them? Disability is most commonly understood through a medical point of view or lens. Here, disability is viewed as a problem in a person's body that is in need of fixing. Through this medical lens, disability is a biological or physical issue, and people with disabilities are oftentimes viewed as broken, defective, or pitiful. While the medical point of view is popular, much of the disability community has challenged this medical view. Instead of biological, many have offered a different point of view that focuses on a social model of disability. This social model of disability separates impairment and disability from each other. Impairment is thought of as a state of the body that is non-standard. The impairment itself may not be viewed as abnormal by the individual. For example, my brother was born visually impaired, and when anyone asks him how it feels to be visually impaired, he usually answers saying something like, it feels normal to me. A disability, on the other hand, is viewed as the disadvantage or restriction of an activity that is caused by social organization. For example, my brother is not bothered by being visually impaired, but he hates it when sidewalks are not shoveled because it becomes very easy for him to become disoriented and lost, 
which makes it hard for him to navigate making his way to a bus stop or a store he is headed to. Within the social model, it is not the impairment one has that is disabling, but rather the social context that disables them. And it's not to say that impairments are not sometimes disabling themselves. Disability can be really painful, and some impairments require modifying the body. In the end, it is important to hold those difficult aspects of disability, but also celebrate the beauty of it together. Without disability, we would not have much of the technology we have today, such as Siri and Hey Google voice detection. Disability is a beautiful way to exist, and the poet and writer Eli Clare reminds us that disability offers us comedy, poetry, performance art, passionate activism, sexy films, important thinking, and fun. Having a limb difference means that someone's limb is different than the majority of people's limbs. For example, they may have three fingers or six toes instead of five. They may have webbing between some or all of their fingers. Many have what some call a stump and no fingers instead of a hand, and others can be missing a whole leg or hand altogether. People can be born with limb differences, or these limb differences can result from an amputation after an injury. Thanks, Anne and Jay. Now, on to Alexis. My name is Alexis Hilliard. I live in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory, and I am the creator of my YouTube show called Stump Kitchen um, that focuses on gluten-free recipes. And... Yeah, that's what I do right now. I'm also a new mom. I just gave birth to my first baby in May. So that's been pretty exciting in my life lately. So could you tell us a bit more about what Stump Kitchen is and how it came to be? Absolutely. So Stump Kitchen is a weekly YouTube show and it came about um, as basically a happy accident. About four years ago, I was experiencing probably the lowest of lows I've ever experienced in my life. Um, I was diagnosed with a major depressive disorder and mild anxiety, and I was really, really having a hard time experiencing joy in my life. Um, and for whatever reason, I started to get into cooking. I think it was because my partner at the time was vegan and I was vegetarian. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try veganism. This sounds like a great fun thing to try um, for, for lots of good reasons, bodily for myself and, and also just like the world um, that, you know, personally or whatever. And I was also just recently diagnosed with a gluten intolerance. Um, so all those things together kind of really was forcing me to become, you know, more involved in the kitchen because it's not that easy or accessible to just like go out and find a quick gluten-free vegan snack. I mean, mm -hmm. it's getting better, but a little bit trickier. And so I was really scared to get into the kitchen um, because you just like see on the Food Network all these professional chefs and all these amazing recipes and all these expensive ingredients. And just it seems like you have to do it so perfectly. But I, so I was nervous. Um, but I, I started with some really easy recipes that I found just online. And started really slowly with like one ingredient at a time. And I found that 
getting into the food, like the chopping and the peeling of the garlic and smelling the herbs um, was an extremely calming and beautiful experience for me. And I also found that my, my, my stump, which is what I call my left, my left arm, um, I'm missing my hand uh, just about two thirds of the way down my forearm. Um, I call it my stump. And I, I found that I was using my stump in these incredible ways um, like as a lemon juicer and as a potato masher and as a spatula. And it was like this cool opportunity for me to like figure out how I was using my arm in, in new ways that kind of helped me fall back in love with it. Um, not that I wasn't really in love with it before, but like it, it really helped me remember that it was such a cool part of my, of my body. Mm. And so then my partner at the time and a friend I had, they were like, you should film this. Like it, the way that you cook is so joyful. It's so fun. It's so cool. And nobody cooks this way that I know of. So you should film it. And I was like, well, okay, I'll give it a shot. And I did. Um, and that's where the first episode of Stump Kitchen came about. Um, but I'll, I'll just say that like that first episode, when I was editing it for myself and watching myself cook, the, the amount of joy that I was experiencing on camera, I really got to see it with, when I was editing it. And it really helped to pull me through a very, very dark time because capturing on video the joy that you're having in the moment and watching it back when you're not feeling that great is an absolutely incredible tool I found for my own uh, survival in a lot of ways. Um, so it became this beautiful therapeutic tool for myself um, and a project in self-love. But then putting it out into the public, people were like, this is hilarious. This is great. I love it. I, like They had a bunch of different ways to kind of grab onto the content, whether it was me being messy or wearing sweatpants or, you know, not showering or dropping stuff or like being imperfect or the vegan stuff or just the one handed stuff. People kind of had, you know, different angles to kind of drop into it. And maybe it was the authenticity that kind of really hooked a lot of people in. I'm not really sure. And so then when I realized that other people were enjoying it too, it was not just, you know, not just for me it became more of an important project in visibility and representation and connecting with parents of kids with limb differences. And it really encouraged me to make a video a week. And that's what I've been doing for four years. I mean, not always every week, like sometimes it's every like 10 days or two weeks if I'm behind, but um, yeah, that's what's made it into what it is today. Amazing. And how are stories and storytelling part of Stump Kitchen? That's a good question. Um, I think I, for, for me, like I, I think in story and I think in metaphor quite often. And so for me to be able to process stuff in my own life, I love telling stories and I love hearing the stories of others. And so on, on set and, you know, as I'm meeting people and connecting with people, even off camera, meeting, you know, new families and, uh, you know, kids with limb differences, etc. The whole way that we all grow together is by telling our stories to each other. And so I think the main question that I get, whether it's on on set or or just like talking to a family off camera is, you know, is my kid going to be okay? You know, I just gave birth to a kid who's missing a hand or whatever. Like, are they going to be okay? 
And then I get to tell stories about my upbringing, my growing up, all of my experiences, all of the funny stories, all of the hard stories. And it's through those experiences that other people kind of grab onto that and be like, oh yeah, you know, like I'm going to be okay or my kid's going to be okay or they can find relationality or like they can relate to it in, in different and personal ways. And I also think like showcasing other people's stories and where they've come from on the channel is a beautiful way for different sorts of audience audience members from all over the world to kind of grab onto like I I don't just like have you know one type of person on the show or I mean like it's not just me talking about my my uh, position and experience like I I love to be able to showcase my guests and hear from them and hear you know what's your perspective like what's it like for you growing up with tar syndrome for example which is another um another experience of somebody with a limb difference and trying to really like, yeah, showcase their stories. And then from that, a lot of my guests have like their own little following, which is kind of cute. Like my friend Faith, who has Tar Syndrome, um, a lot of people have kind of found her through her stories from my show, as well as um, there's a, a kiddo named Callie, who, you know, she's got her own little fan group um, <laughs> and following from, from being on the show who, you know, folks who are able to relate to Callie's experience. So yeah, I think stories are definitely like the, the lifeblood of like what offers a deeper connection through Stump Kitchen and kind of deepens the, the more fun stuff, which is like, this is how I juice a lemon with my stump. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of how it, it plays into it. Amazing. And you, you've already sort of spoken to this, but just to get kind of meta, um, mm-hmm. what story are you hoping to tell through Stump Kitchen? Well, maybe I'll, I'll try to answer that question with a story. <laughs> um, so about, I'd say about nine or 10 years ago, I was connected with a family. Uh, my mom and I were connected with a family of a little one who was born with one hand, almost exactly like mine. And I was connected through the War Amps Champs program, which is an organization in Canada that supports amputees and they connect people, et cetera. Um, so my mom and I went and met this little one and her mom, we'll call her Nicole just for like anonymity. Mm-hmm. And Nicole had learned a lot of like internalized shame around her body. And she was only two and a half years old at the time almost three. And she had already learned to hide her arm and to not use it in daily life. Uh, She had this, the shame that she had uh, grown up with based on a couple of different experiences that she'd had with people in the world. They had lived in multiple different countries and lots of places around Canada, uh, given the nature of the jobs of of her parents. Um, And I think because of that, her mom was saying, you know, different, different views and different, um, I guess, ideas around disability were really coming to the forefront. And um, it was really, really hard for, for her and her family to deal with. And so little Nicole had literally internalized that it was bad to be who she was. And so when, when I got to the house with my mom, my mom and, and her mom chatted and I got right down to the floor and started playing with Nicole. And Right away, I wanted to show Nicole how I 
tied my shoes and she was hiding her arm behind her back in her sleeve as she normally had been. And I put my, my foot in front of her and I, I started tying my shoes and she very quickly noticed that my hands were just like hers. They were quite different. And she just stared at me, just stared at me tying. And then, and then she kind of didn't really smile, but she just kind of went back to playing. And then I got back down on the ground and was playing with her too, with little um, uh, the blocks and stuff that she was playing with. And there's my little baby in the background. <laughs> and um, I uh, started playing with the strings that she was also playing with. And she looked at my hands again, looked back at me. And then I said, you know what, let's go trace our hands upstairs. And so we went up to her art room that her mom had showed us and I traced my hands on some paper. And then I said, okay, it's your turn. So she put down her, her hand and I traced it and she said, all done. And I said, uh-uh, no, we're not done yet. We, want, we need to do your other arm. So she kind of looked at me and then slowly put down her, her Lynn Difference arm on the page and I traced it. And when we were done, I, I held up both of the pages and I showed them to her and I said, look, we're the same. And she just looked at them and looked at me and looked at them and then kind of smiled and then ran back to the play area downstairs and I, I followed her and she asked me to tie my shoes again. And so I showed her how I tied my shoes. And then as she was watching me, she was grabbing her toys and her string and was starting to use her little arm to play. And so like she took it out from under, from beneath her back, from, from behind her back and in her sleeve and, and was using it. And it was just like this beautiful, like break, like this moment of like breakthrough maybe, or just like, I don't know, this beautiful, like unearthing of, of her um, be, being able to be her true self. And like, I could kind of see some of the shame hopefully kind of dropping away. And so I think that's kind of like a long story to kind of showcase what I hope that, that I hope, I hope that Stunt Kitchen relays into the world is just kind of changing the narrative of disability that, you know, Western culture has, which is, you know, really, really poor, really, really negative and um kind of like reclaiming that that power in our in our beautiful unique bodies um so yeah i think that kind of sums it up a little bit <laughs> yeah that's a really incredible story thank you for sharing alexis absolutely so i was wondering how food in particular allows you to tell this story <laughs> well food yeah that's a good question I think food um especially in the way that I relate to it it adds a nice kind of like humorous angle to to stories especially um to my story around you know showcasing my diverse body and my limb difference and and focusing on representation in the media because you know, I can talk about imperfection and spilling and being messy and having fun and showing how I use my stump as a spatula and a juicer and, you know, all those fun and unique things that make people kind of take a second look and they're just like, huh, that's, that's really interesting and cool. Um, but it also makes them laugh. And um, I think whenever I'm able to offer 
a little bit of humor into conversations around, you know, my stump or disability in general, it quite literally, uh, and I say this uh, with air quotations, disarms people <laughs> a little bit. Um, it, you know, the humor helps to let people in and, and maybe takes down some of their, their, you know, their barriers or walls that they might've had originally. And they're able to kind of get in and really listen and learn and have a good time. Um, so I think that food helps offer that way in for people, whether it's through the humor or whether it's through, you know, a fun activity that they can be like, hey, this is, you know, a really cool and accessible different way that I didn't know that, you know, you could be in the kitchen or like, that is a cool way that you open a can with one hand or whatever. So I think that it's, it's a vehicle um, to kind of the, some of the more deeper goals that I have in the show. Yeah, amazing. Mm -hmm. And so how has combining food and story brought you into community with other people? I mean, you've already shared so many amazing stories about that, but uh, mm -hmm. more broadly, how, how has that brought you into community with others? Yeah, I think it's one of the things that it's done is because, because food and story are such a big part of my work and are incredible intergenerational um, tools. Like all generations thrive on story. All generations, you know, need food and and you know love food. It, it's been a really really cool way for my community personally and more broadly to be inclusive of young children all the way up to older adults. And I think that in and of itself has been a beautiful connection point. Like when people ask me, you know, who's your audience? I'm like, well, <laughs> three-year-olds to like 93-year-olds. And, and I love that. I love that so much. Um, I love that, you know, like war vets and young kids and young families and, um, you know, bionic models that I've met online. Like all these people are just coming from all different age groups and walks of life, et cetera. Yeah, so I think for me, like coming into community with others, it's broadened the types of community I've been able to be a part of. And it's really like connected me with more um, diverse families and, and kids um, and folks of all ages that I've really, really liked. Um, yeah, it's just been a really, really cool way to kind of connect generations and stuff and um yeah it's been really really good and what would you say to somebody who is like hey I also love food and I have a story to tell and I want to share it with the world where do I start what would you say to them oh wow yes good I mean it depends on how you want to share your story but you know if if for me I have experienced a sharing story on YouTube and on Instagram so I would just say like make an Instagram account or make a YouTube account. And when I started on YouTube, I literally was filming with my phone, nothing special and editing on a software called Final Cut Pro at the library. Um, they have it on a lot of their makerspace computers. So I didn't spend a cent to start my YouTube channel. And for the first like four or five months, I, I didn't buy anything special. Um, so it's pretty accessible to do it that way. If you have a smartphone or if you can borrow one, um, 
and folks can even use like the webcam on computers if they don't have a phone. So um, yeah, and I didn't know anything starting. I had no idea how to edit. It took a little bit of time, but you know, just getting my story out there on on camera and then looking at it and kind of going through it, you know, at the library um, kind of helps to kind of push me along. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is that doing a story online um, doesn't need to be expensive and it can be accessible. Um, and I'm also really happy to talk to people about that. I've talked to lots of folks who started their own YouTube uh, channels. So if people ever want to reach out and talk to me about that, I love, I love doing that. So I am, uh, it's just youtube.com slash stump kitchen, or you can just Google stump kitchen on, on YouTube and you'll find me. I'm also on Instagram at, at stump underscore kitchen. Uh, and I'm on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, so yeah, lots of different ways to find me and I'd love to love, love to chat. Thank you, Alexis, so much for talking. You're so welcome. Today. If you want to check out Stump Kitchen videos or the delicious cake recipe Alexis shared with us, check out the HUM website. Just a reminder that you're listening to HUM 101, and we are Kendra Cowley and Lisa Prince. And you can tune into the show every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. here on CGSR 88.5 FM. If you have any questions or have a story you'd like to share with us, you can reach us at 587 709 5472 or hum101 at uAlberta.ca or our website at hum101onair.ca. Next, we spoke to Joanita Nanapragasam and Mishma Mukith, co founders of Converse and Cook, a local nonprofit that views cooking as the way to build community and supports the sharing of food and stories from across the globe. Conversa Cook helps people access cultural and familial foods, connecting them to stories and community through their grocery buses and food social programs. Welcome, Joanita and Mishma. My name is Mishma Mukith, and I am one of the co-founders of Conversa Cook. And I'm Joanita Nanapragasam, and I'm the other co-founder of Conversa Cook. How did you meet? But we met volunteering at a student group, and I think we just quickly became really good friends just because there were so many things that we had in common and so many social issues that we both cared about. And I think this was one of the first times where I had a friendship where like, it wasn't really about like day to day, like what's happening in my life. It was more like what's happening in the world and just someone that I could speak to about that. So I think that really just kind of grounded us as good friends. So you are the founders of the nonprofit organization called Converse and Cook. So could you tell us a little bit more about that um, organization and the programs you run for those who do not know? Yeah, I guess to start how it started was, so in my undergrad, I had worked a lot with international students and in student services because you need to pay for school somehow. <laughs> uh, but then that exposed me to a lot of students from different cultures and different like socioeconomic status and just like <clears throat> different life experiences. And I think what I was noticing more so for international than domestic was that the international students were struggling with eating and just eating nutritious foods. And I think the tipping point though for me was like meeting a student from Northern China who had asked me where to buy bulk bottled water. And then I think digging in deeper to find out that that student really was brought up to believe that all tap water was polluted because that's how it was back home. And she was buying bottled water to shower in, to cook her meals in, to do laundry because she thought the tap water was 
poisonous. And then realizing that no one had really stopped to think about how our cultural beliefs and values and even our upbringing changes our food preferences or even our access to food is what got me interested in this. Because when I spoke to university services, I think at that time, healthy eating and nutritious eating was a very one-size-fits-all approach on campus. And it was really rooted in the old Canada Food Guide, which is all about like eating your vegetables and getting your dairy in. And But there wasn't a lot about the culture or the importance of how we actually consume our food. So I ended up doing research on international students to really figure out what it meant, what food meant to them. And then lo and behold, what it really came up with that was that a lot of them really wanted to continue eating the same way they did back home here in Canada. And that was for many reasons, including like, you know, it helped with homesickness. It helped them feel connected to community. A lot of them talked about cultural sustainability, like food was the last link to back home in the sense that like, food is a multi-sensory experience, right? Like it's something that is visually appealing. It smells nice, it's taste, it's touch. And, and so it reminded them of all these memories back home. And they were really disappointed in campus when they couldn't get access to, to ingredients to make the same food. So I remember talking to Mishma about this and being like, you know, these students want cooking classes. They want to be able to share their culture and we don't have that. And what can we do about it? And that I think shaped Converse and Cook to be more like less food literacy focused and then really become this organization where all of our programming is about creating social spaces where people can explore their connection to identity and community. Yeah. And just to jump into that, I think when we were having that discussion about like, you know, findings that Juanita was doing through her research, but also through conversations, I think what really just struck a chord with me is that there's not a lot of opportunity to think about food as like an identity marker. I think sometimes we just kind of go through life by like, this is what we need and this is what we eat. Not really thinking about again, like the cultural roots or the history or the tradition and memory that are associated with some of the meals that are so important to us. And like through those conversations, it really just got me thinking about like my own story with food. And just, I grew up in Hamilton, Ontario for, you know, for half like early half of my life uh, where I was surrounded with like family with like, you know, a lot of South Asians and like rooted in like my Bengali culture. So like for the first 11 years of my life, that's all I knew. So like really like communal eating. I mean, every, I think twice a week, we would all get together and be like a massive feast. Um, You know, and we sat on the floor, we ate with our hands. Those were just things that were just so like normal. And then I moved to Edmonton when I was 11 and a half, 12 years old. Um, And then suddenly that shifted, like even during lunch, like all of a sudden, like I went to school with like my, you know, my traditional food and I'm like, oh, no one's eating this. Or like, there was no microwave or like everyone would be eating like sandwiches. And I wanted to fit in. I was a new kid. I didn't know anyone else. So I really just stopped. Like I started making myself food that, you know, would be I wouldn't have to answer any questions about like, what is that? You know, why does it smell this way? Or like, why do you eat this way? So for a long time, I just kind of shut that part of my identity out or I just kept it very like, I only eat, you know, rice and curry and different things with my family. And I only eat sandwiches and like pasta with like my friends at school. And it just became like a very big stressor whenever like friends would want to come over. And then I had to be like, okay, like we need to cook something else. And so all of these things, I just started thinking about more as we were having these discussions. Um, And then realizing that like, there was so much of like, 
the food that I enjoyed that I just wasn't able to enjoy with the people around me. So I really actively then in university made it a deal to be like, no, like I, I'm a communal eater. Like I want to share my breaks and my food with like my friends. And I like to open up these discussions and just the idea that like food is such a social connector and that there were so many students, particularly on campus who were eating alone and the anxiety that that might cause. In the past, we've run things like grocery buses that have taken students from campus to superstores and back for free so that they can easily buy groceries. We've also, like Misha mentioned, the big part was our cooking classes, which we've now termed cooking socials because that's really what they are. And the way those work is usually we work with students to figure out what kind of food they want to cook. So it's usually a cultural or maybe a sentimental dish they want to share. And then Misha and I would support them in being able to take on more of a facilitator role and how to break that down. And then what happens in those classes, is it's usually 14 to 16 people big, and everyone gets to be a part of a different, um, they get a different group in terms of the meal. So like some people might work on the appetizer and it might be like a salad, and some people might work on like a curry. Some people might work on like making roti or rice. And in your group of like three to four people, you just make that one aspect of the dish, but you cook enough for everybody. And so you really get to know people. And then we set the dinner table where everyone eats together and talks and about the experience. And that's a lot of fun too. How are stories and storytelling, how are they told when you get together? How do you find that it's woven into the food? We usually start off. So whenever we have a cooking social, we have facilitators again, like from the community who've either volunteered their time or they've been participants in the past who really have like a dish that they want to share. So it's a lot of collaboration with them in terms of getting that recipe, but also really digging deep as to, you know, why do you want to share this? Like, what is the memory associated with it? So we have a few prompting questions that we usually like to plant a little bit of a seed to think about, but really we just let the facilitators enter the space and use that time however they feel you know, whatever story they want to share. So sometimes it's really been like technical, like I really like this because it's easy to make, it's super cheap. And like, I have a family of, you know, this many people and this is what I do on the go. So for anyone who's short on time, like this is what, and I think that naturally then prompts the conversation of like people who are also kind of on the same boat being like, you know what, this is really quick and easy. This is the situation that I'm coming from. So I think just even by essence of the layout of, the space, it really does facilitate again, like conversation and storytelling and story swapping because it's not a traditional cooking class where everybody works in pairs to create the same thing and then to eat it like themselves. It's really about like, everyone has a different dish. You're all cooking in that small group that you have with really no direction. Sometimes you have like the ingredients and I know that this has never been intentional, but sometimes you forget a step, especially if it's a facilitator from the community who's always cooked through memory and now they're having to write it down. Sometimes things are missed, but like then you have that opportunity to really break that down and make, make it come to life. However, that looks like for you. A lot of the food is also the same around the world too, with like give or take a few different ingredients. So I know whenever we make like lutkes or like potato pancakes, like they're kind of, you know, like in different cultures, they're called a different thing. Maybe they have a different ingredient, but like we had a class like that where students and participants were like, oh my gosh, like, you know, we cook it this way, but we put like this spice in it. I wonder if they have that and maybe I can show, I'll make you one. And so there's been a lot of those kind of story swapping too. And then it's just the conversation at the end where we all eat together. Food is naturally, I think, an extension of your identity and community. 
And so it is a way of being vulnerable without having to be super vulnerable all at once. And so with our cookbook, with even our grocery buses, it was asking people like, what's appealing to you about this dish? What kind of memories come up with this dish? And really empowering folks who came through our programming to be like, hey, if you're meeting someone new on campus, why not ask them about what they're eating for lunch? Or sit down next to them and ask them, you know, what's your favorite place to eat, right? And and to get those stories that way and not to focus so much on the things that we often do, which is like, oh, what are you studying? Or, you know, how long have you been here? And those kind of things, because it really doesn't get to the heart of who that person is. And it, it can take time, right? And so that's how stories have been weaved in. It's just using food as that medium. Um. I want to thank you for joining me today and uh, thank you for sharing so much. Thank you, Joanita and Mishma. You can learn more about Converse and Cook and check out a recipe from their cookbook on our website and in your monthly kits. The recipe is from Anna Marie Sewell, who is a multidisciplinary, multi ethnic writer and fan of multigrain bread, scribbling and sifting and celebrating the mystery of life in central Edmonton. For so many of us, the kitchen is a place that we come together to share food and company, be it family get-togethers, holidays, or community kitchens, food brings us together. Tanya Ball, midshift storyteller, podcaster, and PhD student from our second episode, shared this antidote about the midshift kitchen. Oh my goodness, so the the midshift kitchen, (laughs) it's so funny. That's pretty much the center of our community. That's where we connect with each other. We gossip with each other. Holy cow, do we ever gossip? <laughs> that's, that's a different storytelling altogether, right? But in the kitchen, we it depends on what we're making. You know, if we're making um, pierogies or something like that, then we each have specific roles. I do the rolling, someone does the folding, someone does the filling, you know, we all fulfill these roles. And (laughs) when you get older, you you graduate into different, like more important roles, like, okay, now you can do the pinching part. (laughs) But it's a space where um, we can keep ourselves busy by cooking but also visit. Visiting is so key to our culture because in the, in the Métis kitchen anyways, there's potentially three generations cooking in the kitchen at the same time. Like right now I'm with my, with my parents and my mom is always in the kitchen and so am I and my daughter and my kids are there too. So it's a way for us to interact and learn from each other, right? Mm-hmm. Through visiting. There are many different ways that we share stories here at HUM. This week, we would love people to share recipes with a story. Those recipes that remind you of home, bring you comfort, or have gone terribly wrong. With your permission, we would love to share them online. So please send us your recipes and those stories. There are no deadlines or grades that come with the assignments, and they are not required to participate. And you really can submit them at any time. We would love to read them, and if you're comfortable, we can read them on air. You can submit completed activities by email at hum101 at ualberta.ca, by phone at 587-709-5472, or by mail, and we can get you some stamped envelopes if you need, at hum101 care of CJSR, room 0-09, Students Union Building, University of Alberta, Edmonton, Alberta, T6G2J7. 
This is a reminder that if you are needing things to participate and work on assignments, let us know. There's a really good chance we might have what you need and we can find a way to get it to you. We end today's class with an interview of Kyla Pascal, founder of Nowhere Kitchen and food justice activist. As you will hear, Kyla has some incredible ideas, stories and experiences inside and outside the kitchen. Uh, my name is Kyla. I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, I'm currently living in Vancouver. I'm Black and Métis. I am going to grad school in Vancouver for Indigenous Community Planning. And I work at Indigenous Climate Action. And in my downtime, I like to do food justice work. Uh, what is food justice work? Uh, food justice is basically looking at all of the ways that inequities exist in our food systems and kind of looking at how we can deal with them. So it's everything from migrant workers' rights to minimum wage for folks working in kitchens and grocery stores and, and all of those spaces to uh, food gentrification. So like who's cooking the food, who's making, who's profiting. So we reached out to you because we know that you are the person behind Nowhere Kitchen. I'm wondering if you could explain a bit about what Nowhere Kitchen is, um, as I think it might relate a bit to food justice. Yeah. Uh, so I worked, before I got into the nonprofit industry, I had worked in the food industry for a number of years. And in that time, I really got to see kind of the inequities that exist in those industries firsthand. I got to, you know, work at really great restaurants and things, but also see lots of people who didn't have one access to these um, establishments or like to organic food at markets. I also got to see who were the people behind the businesses um, who were all lovely people, but at the end of the day, you know, you, you get to see where, uh, spaces are lacking when it comes to kind of representation and and who kind of gets to to run the show when it comes to that. So I developed this kind of event series called Nowhere Kitchen. Um, the name I came up with was uh, based off of the Nowhere Club, which was a group of women in the uh, American South. Who, black women who were basically selling different foods, baked goods, pies, dinners, and stuff to different folks to often their employers, their white employers, and were uh, funding a lot of the civil rights organizing, largely like the, the bus boycotts. And when they were fundraising, people, you know, people would be like, oh, where'd you, like, where'd you get that money? And they would just say nowhere, because they didn't really want to admit that they were, <laughs> that their employers were funding the, the things that they were very much against. So I put together an event series that had different uh, chefs of color uh, create a meal and that kind of aligned with their, with their own culture. And then we had about, it depended on the the event, uh, but about like 20 to 30 attendees and we would sit around a big kind of island kitchen table and the chef would cook and then they would also tell us stories um, 
about the meals, about their relationship to food. Um, just, just really beautiful stories of, of these wonderful, extremely talented chefs and how they, um, how they navigated being in the industry and, and all of those kinds of things. I'm wondering if you could tell me um, how stories were told through cooking and food and eating generally, and then how that happened inside the Nowhere Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would say food. I, I personally, I think the biggest reason that I was like drawn to food justice is how important of a role food has played in my life. Uh, growing up, my, my Métis side, we are farming folk. And some of my best memories, worst memories, were like conversations around a big farm table. Um, those tough conversations is like those happy moments, you know, navigating like grief or just like celebrating, you know, different holidays um, and, and learning how to cook. Food has always presented itself as, as such an important place of storytelling. And I think that's for most people. Like, I think everybody can recall, like, a beautiful food memory and often, like, not good ones. I think so much happens around a table and around food. I think there's lots of stories of access to food and, and food spaces that conjure up a lot for people. Um, I was recently reading for school uh, an article about um, some Indigenous fisher women um, out in BC and it was um, kind of also in the context of of storytelling and how they were continuing their their stories and their culture through through fishing and teaching you know several generations of how to fish so I think there's there's so much in the cooking who does the cooking who teaches us how to cook one of, one of my favorite uh, Nowhere Kitchen uh, stories was Scott Eiserhoff uh, as an indigenous young chef and he was talking he made a dish he made sliders but he used spam and so he was talking about um, how on the res like access to grocery stores you know a lot of places you have to drive really far so he was so lots of people eat spam lots of people eat bologna and so it was like a, a really great conversation around comfort foods foods that you just have access to. There's so much there to, to talk and unpack. And then, yeah, eating. I think it's just so fun. I love eating. <laughs> I think people should, you know what I mean? I think everybody should really lean in to eating of like such a, I think you like look at, like I feel like Italians really have it going on in terms of like really like just going for it, you know? Don't shy away from it. Just really indulge yourself. I think our culture likes to, hold back but really go for it well we have a lot of pride in discipline exactly. and withholding yeah and doing without by choice mm -hmm. you know like that kind of aesthetic behavior yeah. where it's like i i have control over this part of my wants and desires yeah. that's a big one with with food is like a thing i'm constantly pushing back uh in food justice is the uh there's a lot of fat phobia in you know, the like health and wellness of food and it doesn't uh, 
give space for just the enjoyment, one, the access. I'm like, who cares? Like, who cares if somebody's like, I love eating McDonald's. Like, I don't know. That's great. Good for you. I love that. It's delicious. You know what I mean? There's no judgment here. There's a reason McDonald's is very successful. (laughs) Yeah, like literally, you know? (laughs) So I think it's a fine line. I recognize like there's lots of um, conversations of like, you know, workers' rights, um, farming industry and like, you know, big farms. That is a concern. But you also have to balance it with like the individual realities that are facing everybody. When I think a lot of the withholding comes also from privilege, right? Absolutely. It recognizes, it, 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 it intonates a choice whether or not people recognize it or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it looks different for different people. Mm-hmm. A big part of what happens in the Nowhere Kitchen is the sharing of stories. I was going to ask you if you could share us, uh, share with us, pardon me, um, some of the stories that have been told. And on the other hand, what stories are not being told? Because the Nowhere Kitchen is developed in response to the everywhere kitchen that we see mm-hmm. in some ways. I'm, I'm hearing, I could yeah, be wrong no, about that. But, um, so what are the stories that aren't being told in Nowhere Kitchen, um, as well as perhaps one that sticks out for you? I loved um Bev from Reggae Kitchen a Jamaican woman which actually in lieu of COVID they've closed their storefront but are still doing catering but they um her I think just her journey of becoming a business owner and just like living her best life of being a black woman in Edmonton running a kitchen and a restaurant was just really wonderful because I had a hard time finding, um, again, like the professional, air quote, air quote, um, female chef. I had lots of women who I approached who were too nervous to do it, which made me so sad. Um, And I think I'll just say non- cis men are often left out of the conversation of cooking um as it's I think a socializing of like who gets to cook who gets to cook what um and and so I find that Nowhere Kitchen came out of a need let's have the folks who grew up with their actual you know like cookums or abuelas cooking being the ones who get to like really profit off of their, their own culture. Um, and that they also get to tell those stories um, that, that they're really connected to, I think is, is really important. Those stories that we associate with food. So when I eat food, I conjure up whether or not it's familiar to me. I conjure up images as they've been shown to me and have they been retold to me because they're not my stories, right? So I think it would be important for me to think about who's, who's telling me those stories as yeah. I participate in that. And I think that's like, this is not to say like, don't eat other cultures and don't try making, you know, I've made my share of like cabbage rolls. Yeah, I think there's something to be said of when we eat, I think that is an opportunity to, to 
to learn about a culture, to, to learn those stories. So it's wonderful that we can have these opportunities to, to gather one day. One day again, we will gather <laughs> and share those stories and eat together. Share food. That's a huge thing that's happened with COVID is the yeah. food, that sharing of food is really, well illegal essentially it's dangerous it's considered dangerous in a way that yeah so one day i'm wondering if you could leave us with any um other last kind of insights around how we can tell stories through our food Mm. i think food is such a beautiful um labor of love that we get to like share with one another. And I think using those opportunities to, I don't know, it's, I'm going to say reach across the table, but that seems so cheesy. (laughs) I'm just using food as a way to connect. Cause I think uh, as we mentioned in this, like, yeah, potentially restrictive uh, culture we live in, it's such a beautiful way that we can, we can share with one another and, and, Um, and enjoy thank you very much (laughs) for coming and sharing your experience with nowhere kitchen and the ideas from where it came and how you told stories and how stories were shared thank you thanks for having me thank you kyla for talking to us about food justice and the nowhere kitchen we have also included a few articles about the nowhere club kyla talks about in the interview she also shared a list of local grocers that can be found online And the article, we have stories, five generations of Indigenous women in water. You can find this and much more online and in the kits. Thank you so much to everyone who participated in today's class and all the people that continue to support the class. And thank you for tuning in. Thank you again, AG47, for the intro and outro music. Next week, we have an entire class dedicated to East African storytelling, and we'll be hearing from two celebrated storytellers, Tololwa and Changa, who have many stories to tell. It is going to be great, so tune in to 88.5 FM CJSR next week at 6 p.m. Thank you, and good night.